Good afternoon. Good to be with you once again. I hope you all enjoyed your free time. I hope it was filled with coffee like mine. That's probably my favorite way to spend free time is drinking good coffee. Uh, so I hope you all are ready to dig back into the book of Daniel. And I'm going to invite you guys to open up with me to Daniel chapter 5. And uh, again, our intention this weekend is not to cover the whole book of Daniel by any means, uh, but we are trying to hit on some high points as we continue to ask this question, how can we remain faithful in an unfaithful world? So that's very much the purpose of the writing of the book of Daniel. In fact, when you read this book, it becomes pretty evident because this is a book that is uh, no doubt historical. And every detail that this book records is historical. It's historically accurate. Uh, so this book does tell history. But it's also very clear that the main intention that Daniel had in mind when he recorded this book wasn't first and foremost to teach us history, but he wrote this book for a purpose. He wrote this book to encourage and equip uh, people like us today, followers of God who would find themselves in a context kind of like Babylon. So we're going to get into that uh, as we move forward tonight. In December of 2021, the Atlantic ran an article, and the title of the article was this, The Bad Guys Are Winning. The Bad Guys Are Winning. And uh, one of the opening lines of this article says this, If the 20th century was the story of slow, uneven progress toward the victory of liberal democracy over other ideologies, communism, fascism, virulent nationalism, then the 21st century is, so far, a story of the reverse. And uh, the, the author of this article brings out all kinds of different things going on in the world, uh, rigged elections, corrupt governments, injustice, oppression all over the world. And when you examine this world uh, on that geopolitical kind of scale, it does appear that very often in large parts of this world, the bad guys do seem to be winning. In fact, our world is not short on bad guys. Uh, and I think we understand that. And if we just think through some of the big events in the past couple of years, we can see this playing out. You know, we think back to 2001 with the Taliban just overrunning Afghanistan. And the, the fallout from that has been massive. Uh, obviously, we think about the war in Ukraine beginning in 2022, and it seems like that continues to just dominate the news. When you open up any kind of news outlet, you, you are bombarded with news from Ukraine, and it's a very sad thing. Uh, so much violence, so much unrest in the Middle East and all over the world. Uh, it does appear that often the bad guys are winning. And certainly as we think through uh, the world that we live in today and as we take our Christian worldview and we use that as a lens through which to see this world even more so, it seems that we live in a world in which the bad guys are winning. And I don't think I have to give you too many examples of this because I think you feel it every day. I think that when you went into your workplace in the month of June or when you walked into any kind of store in the month of June, you did get the sense that Christian values, 
Christian morals, Christian ethics are not winning the day. Uh, It seems that we as Christians are not uh, winning the public discussions. And what we represent, what we believe is not winning the day. The bad guys are winning. And that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Because that is, in fact, exactly the kind of world that the Bible has prepared us to live in. Uh, Jesus promised us, in this world, you will have trials and tribulations, but be of good hope. I have overcome the world. Uh, The New Testament, in fact, Jesus himself referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that in Ephesians. Satan, according to Jesus, in some sense, rules this world. And then we talked about 1 Peter. 1 Peter basically tells us that this world is not our world, because we are exiles. We are sojourners and exiles. We are living in a world that we don't quite belong in. And Peter reminds us that our task is not to overthrow world systems. Rather, the main question that we ask is, how do we be faithful within this world? And that is why the book of Daniel is such a powerful book, because Daniel was written to a a group of people, a group of followers of God who are in a very similar situation And at this point that we find ourselves in, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5, not only are the bad guys winning, but they've been winning for a long time. Israel at this point, or Judah, has been in exile for 60-something years. Many, many decades of good coming out on the bottom. Good is losing over and over and over again. And our context certainly is a very different context, and yet it is a very similar context. So the question that I want to ask tonight, as we dig into Daniel chapter 5, is how can we be faithful living in a world in which the bad guys are winning? Because that is our world. And I will tell you up front that the key to living in a world where the bad guys are winning is to remind yourself and to recognize that ultimately it is God who rules this world. And we're going to walk through this text. We'll touch on chapter four a little bit, but we have jumped from chapter three to chapter four. I'll just say this. We encountered Nebuchadnezzar in chapter three. He will come back in chapter four and it will be very different because in chapter four, the Lord humbles Nebuchadnezzar and he humbles him in a big way. And we'll we'll get little hints of that. But basically the Lord has reminded Nebuchadnezzar that you are not actually in charge. And Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn that lesson. But when we find ourselves in chapter five, this is about a generation later and history repeats itself. We encounter another king, but we encounter the same truth that God runs this world. So we're going to walk through this chapter and this chapter is a wild one. But it's such an incredible narrative. So what I want to do tonight is I want to just walk us through this chapter. And my goal is to let the narrative speak. So we'll spend some time just walking through and seeing what, what this story is about. And then at the end, I want to take us through some lessons that we can draw for today. But I want to let the text speak. So the way we're going to approach this chapter is we will examine it under three headings. And then at the end, again, we'll come back and we will learn five lessons on living in a world in which the bad guys are winning. So let's read verses 1 to 4. The first heading that we see here is rebellion and mystery. Rebellion and mystery. Read verses 1 to 4 with me. King Belshazzar 
the great feast for a thousand of his lords, and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now again, last time we looked at the book of Daniel, we were with Nebuchadnezzar. Now we encounter this new king. You might be wondering, who is this Belshazzar? Uh, The text describes him as a son of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he wasn't literally a son, but he was a son in the, the sense that he was an heir to the throne. So he would have been a successor. There have actually probably been two kings in between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. So a lot has happened in this kingdom. And yet Belshazzar, we find out, shares the same sins as his great successor, his great predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, namely this, he has no room for a king beyond himself. Thinks he's in charge. The scene in these four verses is an ugly one. What we have here is probably thousands of people. Belshazzar throws this huge party. He brings people in. Uh, They're drinking, they're partying, no doubt. There's just all kinds of of sin going on. And then Belshazzar has this idea. He says, send someone out to go to the temple. Now, this would have been the temple of God. Remember, Jerusalem. Send someone to go to the temple of God. Bring those vessels that his uh, his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken. Bring those vessels and let's take them to this party. And if you know your Old Testament, you know what the temple represented. The temple was the centerpiece. It was uh, the, the, the central place of worship for the Jewish people, for God's people. So this is a big deal. And he sends these people out to take these temples. This is a big deal. And they take these vessels and they use these vessels. They drink from them and they praise, as Daniel puts it in verse 4, the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now make no mistake. What you have here is a very calculated, very direct, and very emphatic act of blasphemy. Uh, This is a king who is insecure about his reign. He knows that his kingdom at this time is in a fragile place. And what he is doing is he is very intentionally shaking his fist at the God of Israel. And he's saying, you pose no threat to me. And I think when you look around our world today, we see some of that, don't we? I do think that we live in a world in which people continue to shake their fists at God. People continue to, to live their lives in such a way as to say the God of the Bible poses no threat to me. We live in that kind of world. And this was the world that Daniel and his friends found themselves in. And then something wild happens. Read with me verses 5 to 9. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. 
The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 8, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writings or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. There is no doubt this is one of the strangest scenes in the whole Bible. This is a very strange scene uh, amidst this huge party, amidst this blasphemy and debauchery. This disembodied human hand appears. It starts writing on the wall and Belshazzar understandably is terrified. In fact, the the ESV says in verse 6 that his limbs gave way. Uh, The original language, it means either that his limbs gave, uh, gave out, his limbs quit working on him, or his bowels quit working on him. Actually, when you read the commentators, it was probably the second one. And I say that not to be gross, but to just demonstrate for you what a wild and incredible scene this is. Imagine this scene. You have a king who one minute is shaking his fist and blaspheming the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. And the next minute he has lost control of his mind, his pride, and even his own body. This is a crazy, crazy scene. And it's only the beginning of his humiliation. It's going to get a lot worse. Uh, So he's mystified by this writing. First of all, where did this disembodied hand come from? And second of all, what does it mean? What does this writing mean? So it's at this point that he pulls a page from Nebuchadnezzar's playbook. He brings his guys to him. He brings the best of the best, the smartest guys out there. And he says, explain this to me. Tell me what these words mean. And the results are the same as they were for Nebuchadnezzar. These guys have no idea. And that's when the queen gets involved. I'll look at verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Uh, Let me pause right there. If you've read to the end of the chapter, you know that that little statement is loaded with irony. Uh, A second thing to note is that this would have been very, very embarrassing. The queen gets involved. O king, live forever. She says, let your thoughts not alarm you or your color change. In other words, Belshazzar, get a hold of yourself. And then she continues, verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. He has an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. I know that's confusing because it sounds very similar. Different name. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. And here's where we we realize that lots of time has passed since Daniel chapter 1. This is a new era in Babylon. 
Gone are those glory days of Nebuchadnezzar. Gone are the days of Daniel. He was high up. He served in a very powerful position in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. Those days are gone. Daniel has been almost forgotten. He's a historical footnote now. The queen still remembers him. And I think there's a subtle, uh, yet a definite lesson in there for us, which is that a faithful Christian testimony, a faithful, consistent testimony can have a lasting effect. As you read through the book of Daniel, you do get the sense that Daniel was faithful. He was bold. He was uncompromising. And yet again, he was dignified. Uh, He was respectful and respectable. He conducted himself in an honorable way. And therefore, the queen remembers that. Uh, And I would just take this opportunity to ask you, what is your testimony among people who don't know the Lord? Uh, What do people say about you? Not just Christians, but what would non-Christians say about you? Do you have the kind of testimony through which many decades after the fact, someone who does not know the Lord could remember you and have good things to say about you? Do you leave a good taste in people's mouth? That seems to be the kind of testimony that Daniel had, and I think there's a lesson for us to learn there. So that's heading number one. Now let's look at heading number two. Uh, We'll call this one Pride and History. Look at verse 13 with me. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. Now notice that right off the bat, Belshazzar is demeaning Daniel. You are an exile. So you are that Daniel. And then he says in verse 14, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is with you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard you can give interpretations and solve problems. If you can, read the writing and make known to me its interpretation. You shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So there's the offer. And it should sound familiar because it appears elsewhere in the book of Daniel. In fact, it would have been familiar to Daniel because Nebuchadnezzar made a very similar kind of offer to him. And as was the case a generation ago, Daniel is going to interpret this dream. But first, what he's going to do is he is going to take Belshazzar to school And he's going to give him a history lesson about his great father, Nebuchadnezzar. Read verses 17 to 23 with me. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king... The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he killed, whom he kept alive, 
Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his house have been brought in before you. You and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which, you, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. I don't know who was in that room. I don't know if Belshazzar's thousands of guests were still there, or if this was a one-on-one kind of thing. But I can imagine that you could hear a pin drop after that speech. And Daniel reminds this king of his great father, Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar was a great king. In fact, if you were to Google Nebuchadnezzar, you would find a lot of references to Nebuchadnezzar the Great. He was a great king, there's no doubt. He was a great warrior. He was a great leader. He was a great conqueror. He was responsible for building some of the greatest structures that the world has ever known. But as Daniel points out, he had one near fatal flaw, and that is that he was proud. And his pride blinded him from a couple crucial realities. One was that God gave him everything he had. Uh, Verse 18, he says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, All peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared him. Everything Nebuchadnezzar had was on loan from God. Nebuchadnezzar had power because God gave it to him. Nebuchadnezzar had land because God gave it to him. He had glory because God had given it to him. And as Nebuchadnezzar would find out, God can just as quickly take those things away from him. And God did. And I hope you realize that you don't have to be a king to learn that lesson. Everything we have is on loan from God. God has given us our very breath. God has given us our families. Everything we have, God has given to us. God can take that away from us. And the second thing that Nebuchadnezzar failed to realize is he failed to realize that he was not the ultimate king. And that's when the Lord humbled him. Verse 21, he humbled Nebuchadnezzar until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. God is the true king. 
And every earthly ruler like Nebuchadnezzar, like Belshazzar, merely a vice regent. But God in charge. And eventually, Nebuchadnezzar gets that. It takes a long time, uh, but the message gets through. Nebuchadnezzar gets this, and Belshazzar knew all of this. Again, look at verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. This is a hardened sinner that we are dealing with here. He knew. He probably saw it happen. He, he was there. He probably was there to see Nebuchadnezzar's fingernails grow like bird's claws, as it's described in chapter 4. He was there to watch Nebuchadnezzar living with the animals, cast out from the city, living like a beast, being humbled by the Lord, eating grass. Belshazzar saw that. Belshazzar knew that. In fact, he probably saw or at least heard of the burning, fiery furnace. He, he knew all of these things. And what does he do with that knowledge? He openly and emphatically and defiantly blasphemed the God who had humbled his great father, Nebuchadnezzar. And I think there's a lesson here about the human heart, which is that the human heart is capable of becoming very, very hard. Because this man had a hard heart. And a second lesson here, which is just as chilling, if not more so, is that there's not always time to change. There's not always time to change. And I would just pause here. In case there is someone here who has hardened their heart against God, turn to God. Trust in God. Humble yourself before God because there is not always time. That's what we find in these last verses. Verses 24 to 29. We'll, we'll look at these verses under the heading Judgment and Sovereignty. Verse 24, then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed. Mena, Mena, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mena. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided, given to the Medes and Persians. Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar was a man of his word. We'll give him that. These few verses are written in a very direct, very understated, but very confident and unambiguous way. There's all kinds of stuff happening in the original language. There are plays on words here. We're not going to get into that, but I do want to just walk you through these three words. First of all, mena. It's Aramaic for numbered. It's written on the wall twice to connote certainty. 
Belshazzar, your time is up. The Lord has stamped an expiration date on your rule, and you've hit that date. You're done. Tekel, weighed. Belshazzar, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. The Lord has seen your report card and he's not satisfied. Perez, it's the singular form of the word parson that's written on the wall and it means divided. Belshazzar, the sun is setting on the kingdom of Babylon. Your kingdom is divided, it's split into two. And in fact, this is happening in real time. Uh, what you, you don't quite notice until you pan out is that while all of these events are taking place, while this party is happening, while the blasphemy, the thousands of people are here drinking and shaking their fists at the God of Israel, if you were to pan the camera back, you would see that the city is under siege and the walls are starting to, crum to crumble down and the people are pouring in. And in verse 30, we read this, that very night... Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. It all comes crumbling down. In fact, in just a few words, what Daniel described for us there is one of the most significant events in all of history, which was the fall of the Babylonian Empire. It's over. If they made a movie about Daniel chapter 5, I would see that movie. Because this is a wild story. But why is it in the Bible? And what does it have to do with people like us? Because one thing that I'm sure you notice from Daniel chapter 5, and you notice it in Daniel chapter 6, is that these stories, while they are great stories... They are very definitely not normative, right? It's not normal for three people to get cast into a fire and then miraculously be saved from it. And this story is not normal. Very rarely is justice so swift and so poetic. So if these stories are not normative, what are they doing in our Bibles? Uh, and here's where I, I just want us to step back a little bit. And think for a second about the book of Daniel as a whole. Because I think as we step back and examine this book, that's where we will find the key to understanding, understanding not only the three texts that we've looked at, but also the texts that we'll look at tomorrow morning. Now again, I want to remind you that these events took place when the people of God were in exile. And the reason Daniel recorded these events was to uh, encourage and equip followers of God in this context or really in any context that lived in a world that was similar to this to answer that question, how can you be faithful to God in an unfaithful world? So these events were written to sustain us and to equip us. And the primary way that Daniel wants to go about that mission is by showing us the future. And that's what you find in the second half of Daniel. And we're going to kind of touch on that tomorrow morning in Daniel chapter 7, but mainly the way Daniel equips you is by showing you the future. So I want to give you a little illustration of this. Imagine 
uh, you are walking down a long, hard, and very foggy road. And at a certain point in this road, the fog lifts. You see the end of the path. And it's a long way away, but you've seen the end of that path. And that does encourage you and strengthen you to continue to put one foot in front of the other and to keep going. And what happens in Daniel 7 through 12 is that fog lifts and Daniel shows people who are in a hard situation, who are living in a world where the bad guys are winning, he shows them the future. He shows them that someday Jesus will reign as king, wrongs will be made right, justice will be real. That's what we have to look forward to. So where do stories like Daniel chapter 5 fit into this? Uh, what we see in Daniel chapter 5 is some foreshadowing. In fact, what it is, is a vivid illustration of what we have to look forward to when Jesus makes things right, Daniel 7 through 12. What will it be like when Jesus comes to this world and claims his throne and overthrows every human authority? It's going to look a little something like Daniel chapter 5. These events foreshadow the greater events that we'll start to touch on tomorrow. So what do we draw from this? Let me give us five applications. Number one, God will not be mocked. Galatians 4, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Every single person in this room will answer to God. And it might not be in this lifetime, but every single person that you have ever met will one day stand before the God of the universe and God will not be mocked. Again, we live in a world in which it very often appears that God is mocked, but that is not the case. And when you read the gospels, you will see that Jesus faced much abuse. Jesus was a victim of mockery and of beatings and he never opened up his mouth and there's a reason for this, and that's because God is gracious. In fact, Second Peter says that God is gracious, not wanting for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And it's important for us to, to live with that kind of posture in this world. It's important for us to live with that gracious posture toward our, our neighbors and toward even those with hostility toward the Christian faith. But we, it's equally important for us to remember that in the end, when the final tally is taken, God will not be mocked. The day is coming when everyone will answer to God. And I think this is important because in this unchristian world that we live in, some of you are probably experiencing that mockery. Some of you, perhaps, perhaps in your, your family or perhaps in your workplace, are living in a context in which God is mocked. But Daniel chapter 5 would remind us that that is temporary. That God is not mocked. Justice is real. Judgment is sure. And you cannot shake your fist at the God of this universe and get away with it. Number two, God will humble the proud. God will humble the proud. Belshazzar experienced it. Nebuchadnezzar experienced it. And every single person in this world will one day experience it. I don't think there's a more deadly sin in this world than the sin of pride. 
And I think the reason it's so, so deadly is because it's so subtle and it's so blinding and it's so hard to recognize in yourself. And all of those are, are, are examples of just how deep the sin of pride goes. And I think perhaps this sin affects Christians in particular. And if you've been sitting here hearing these sermons and it's, it's only puffing you up and making you even more proud because you're saying, well, I would never do that. I'm not the one who would compromise. I'm going to stand strong. If that's you, then, I, then you still don't get it. And you're still struggling with this, this sin of pride and God will humble the proud. If you don't humble yourself, God will. Everything comes from God. And when you stand before God someday, you will feel very, very small. So humble yourself now, because God will humble God. Third lesson from Daniel chapter 5. God will put all idols to shame. One of the biggest themes in this book is God, capital G, versus the lowercase g, gods. The gods of stuff, the gods of wood and hay and stone And most of us in this room are not tempted to worship material kind of gods. But we worship, uh, excuse me, most of us aren't tempted to worship those kind of gods, but we worship more material gods. Uh, We worship the gods of money. We worship gods of relationship, gods of security, gods of comfortable retirement or an easy life. And someday God will weigh those things in the balances and they will be found wanting. God will put all idols to shame. Everything in this world that competes for the ultimate allegiance in our life is fragile. It's temporary. It is an idol. And God will put those to shame. Number four, God is the author of history. Again, we've touched on this in every sermon. We're going to touch on it again tomorrow because it's the main theme from this book. But the events of verses 30 and 31 were recorded a long time ago. The fate of Babylon was written a long time ago. Uh, Habakkuk 2, Isaiah 13 and 47, Jeremiah 50 and 51, all of these speak to these events. The fate of Babylon was written earlier in your Bible. In fact, it was written in eternity past. Because God is the author of history. Nothing has ever or will ever take place that God has not ordained, and God ordains things for his glory. And if you're one of his people, you can cling to the great promise that for you, his glory and your good intersect. And you can trust that as God writes history, he's writing a good story. If you are one of his people, God is the author of history. And the fifth and final and most important lesson from this text is that God rules the world. That God actually rules this world. There is not a truth that comes through more emphatically than that one. God rules this world. Not just God will rule this world, but God does, in fact, rule this world. And I know that you know this. I know that if you're a Christian, you know this at least intellectually, but all too often the lives that we live don't seem to fully agree with that profession. And I I would ask you that if you agree with that statement, 
that God rules this world, will you agree with that just as vigorously in, say, November of 2024, if your candidate loses the election? Will you continue to believe just as vigorously that God rules this world next time you turn on the news and you hear coverage of Ukraine or you hear bad news next time tragedy strikes? Will you continue to believe that God rules this world? Or next time you get a flat tire or next time you lose your job or next time you have a difficult conversation with your boss, will you continue to believe that God fact rules this world. If you can keep trusting in that truth, and if you can keep living consistently with that truth, then you will make it through your time of exile. You will remain faithful in an unfaithful world. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to believe this truth. Father, as we look around us, we see chaos. We see darkness and we do see the bad guys winning. Father, I pray that we would look to this story of Belshazzar and we would find hope that in fact you rule this world. And one day every single ruler, every single person will answer to you. You will install your true king and he will take over and his reign will be marked with peace and justice. Father, we look forward to that day. Help us to live in eager anticipation, in humility, in hope, in urgency. Help us to love the people around us enough to to proclaim Christ to them. Father, help us to live in light of the end. And we thank you, Father, that you will make all things right. We praise you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.